0: I'd like you to open the Gospel of John again, John chapter 8, and we'll continue on with the subject of we can be free. I want to talk about four ways in which Christians are bound, because you see, our text says, you shall know the truth in verse 32. He says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And as I've already said in the two previous messages, Jesus seems to indicate to us that though we are his people and we have been what we call saved, it doesn't mean we're free. It doesn't mean we're useful to the Lord yet, but it means that we are delivered from the penalty of sin. All the things that we have done, we've been forgiven of. And there we stand, free from that, God's people, certified his people, but with a whole lot of work that needs to be done in order for God to be able to do with us what he wants to do with us. I know you agree with that. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2. He said, you know, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows who his people are. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then he said, now in a great house, there are good things and there are things that are not so good. There are things that will get in the way and then there's things that are useful. And Paul wrote this, he said, if a man therefore would purge himself, he's talking to Christians. So even though we're free from the penalty of sin and we're saved, that doesn't mean that there's not things in our lives we don't need to be purged from. I know you know that. There are things in our life that keep dominating us, that keep ruling our conduct and our attitude, things that keep drawing us back and making us less than what we should be. And Jesus said this to us who have all these problems. Our mind has to be renewed, obviously. As we look in a mirror, we see the glory of the Lord. The Bible says we're being changed. So being saved and the process of change are not the same thing. They go together. Once God saves you, he begins changing you. You didn't get a new brain when you got saved. You got the mind of Christ, yes. But the mind that ruled your life all those years prior to that, the ways you were trained and taught, your attitudes, your hang-ups, that's still there. And it'll still do the same thing it always did do unless you get your eyes open to see what God says, things he gives you, to get all of that out of your life. Some people think that, well, now I'm saved. I go to church. You sit in a seat, and you go to church the rest of your life, and, and you never really enjoy Christ. You never enjoy Christianity. You never derive great benefits from God. You just sort of go to church, listen to sermons, and wonder. Now, that was the rut that I was in years ago. I guess some of you were. And then when I begin to be taught, when I begin to actually read and listen to people who were teaching, I begin to realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff in my life that's keeping me from being the way I should be. In other words, there is a way that I could say this. I'm bound. I'm not going to hell. I- I'm saved. But I'm not free. Little things still rule me. Little things still tick me off. Little things still hold me back. Little things still cause me to give up and quit. Little things still make me argumentative and overly sensitive to what people say. Just a lot of things in my life that just reduce me to somebody that's just difficult. It shouldn't be. You came to the Lord like that. You should not stay that way. Because as God opens our eyes, if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to go hear the word, If you're willing to open your heart up and say, God, teach me thy ways that I may walk in thy truth. If you're willing, God will show you things. And then life becomes a challenge. Are you willing to make that adjustment? Are you willing to change? Are you willing to walk that way? This is what God wants. Because remember, he said, if a man will purge himself from these offensive things in his life, then he shall be a vessel unto honor Set apart or sanctified, useful to the Lord, then God is able to use you. 2 Corinthians 7th chapter, verse 1, he said, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. We brought that into the kingdom. God knew what we were when He saved us, He saved us with that. Brought us to himself, but he has no intention of leaving us like that. So consequently, we come to the church. We read, we study, we we get involved with spiritual matters so that God's word, the entrance of his word can give light and show us things in our life that we need to deal with. Because if we don't deal with it, if that stuff remains in our life and we keep acting the way we've always acted, we live a bound life. I want to share with you this morning some things that are so common that we overlook them, but they bind us. They prevent us from being free. The first one is one of the biggest, one of the most common, and one that everybody is familiar with is called fear. Fear has many forms. In researching fear on the Google Network, you know, you can type up sermons and then dash fear and you can get in no telling what you get. But there was a few interesting comments in sermons. One comment was that the doctors and the physicians and those who do this kind of research say they have found nearly 700 different kinds of phobias or fears. You know, there's a fear of germs and people won't shake hands because of germs. There's a, a fear of darkness. There's even one phobia that's fear of purple. A fear of purple. I think, how could that be? I know why there could be, because when I was in college, I had to dance to purple once, and my final exam was to, in a modern dance class, don't ever take a modern dance class. But my teacher told me to dance to purple, modern dance, expressive dancing, dance to purple. And being the uh, type of person I was, I said, now, how you do that? And she said, well, this, you express what purple means to you in art form. I said, I don't know how to do that. And then she said, before the whole class, said, you want to pass this course or not? Well, okay. She said, well, then you dance. <laughs> so I, I made about five or six seconds, and she told me to sit down. Everybody was laughing, and I, I was doing my very best to describe how ignorant dancing to purple was. And I started doing all these crazy things. She said, sit down. And I got a D in the course. In my major, in physical education major, I got a D in modern dance. So don't ever take modern dance. But anyway, there are fears of Purple. But I think of all the ways that people are bound with fear. How many times being afraid keeps you from going forward? How many times of having a fear of something keeps you from really believing what God said? It'll kill your faith. The fact that fear is there, it means a great fold. Fear is a terrible taskmaster. There are some people who have advanced degrees or stages of being ruled by fear they're afraid of everything they're terrified they live terrified christians like this we get together and sometimes and we talk about our fears oh i'm scared of this that scares me to death that's about as bad as fear can get would scare you to death and they talk about that or the storms coming well they're forecasting this and uh you know hailstones the size of, of golf ball. if They hit you in the head well you're, you know and stuff like that and almost afraid to go out a fear of you ate something that you shouldn't eat. You know, you ate a a Big Mac. I get two a year, so, you know. Oh, if you eat that, you'll clog up and die right away. And so people are ruled by by fear. No matter what the Bible says, no matter what encouragement you read when you read the Bible about what it says, people are still ruled by fear. They're just conquered and fear. Now, here's the reason I think it is. I've tried to think, how does fear take hold of so many people? How does it do that? And I think it's because people like to be self-reliant, self-control. I like to be in charge. Anything I'm in charge of, and I feel like I'm bigger than, stronger than, smarter than, have the control over the rule, anything that I'm over, I don't fear it. It's when the thing that I'm with or... facing or approaching is bigger than I am I'm going to the parking lot after the you know shopping going out in the parking lot and here comes two shady looking thugs towards my car they don't look like they're shopping at all except for what's in my car or what's in my wallet or my purse if you're a lady and you see them coming and so your brain says this is not good it might just be they're going to go, you know, to the store. But as far as you're concerned, you start thinking, because I've read papers, I've heard news accounts. This is going to be a robbery, abusive situation. Huh. Now, they're still far enough away that I can get out of here. And if I'm afraid they're going to get me, I'm going to turn and take off. I'm going to keep looking over my shoulder, see if they're there. And so there's a bit of fear. If you're a man, you think, well... I'm still young enough that one of these guys will limp when he goes home. But the other one might make me limp. I'd rather not limp at all. I think I'm just going to come out of here. So you leave. See, a fear of being harmed, a fear of being hurt, a fear of having something that you work for taken from you by somebody that didn't deserve it, a fear of robbery, thievery, a fear of some sort of harm. Now, if two thugs were approaching you and you were armed and the thugs saw you there and you kind of exposed a weapon, they would probably rethink what they were doing if they were going to attack you. They'd probably say, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. Now, I'm in control of this guy that we're going to try to rob, or this woman here. I'm bigger than they are. I'm tougher, meaner, stronger. Two of us can handle this person. But that thing they called a bark here and a bite yonder, that pistol, I don't think... I don't think I can handle that. I think that's over my head. And because I don't think I can handle it, now fear kicks in. Because I'm not sure I know what to do. It's like walking home in a dark night. During the day, you can see behind the bushes. You're in charge. You can, you can still manage what you're going to do. But at night, you can't see. And what does your brain tell you? They're behind every bush. Somebody there is waiting on you behind a bush, and they're going to get you. Kids won't sleep in a dark room. They want the light on, especially if there's been some kind of an accident or or thing in their life because of fear. Something is going to get you. Something is going to overtake you. Somebody's going to rob you, cheat you, lie to you, or something to you. And the fear companies are making fortunes off of our fears. They make fortunes off of fear. I mean, people are spending a lot of money buying everything from cameras to guns to a trained dog you hope stays trained and, and all of these kind of things because they don't want anybody to hurt them or to take something from them. And you live in fear. And sometimes when it snows, when it begins to snow, you know, you, can, you get in your all-wheel drive car and it does fine. You get on an icy road and you think, you know, I can't have, This is over my head as far as driving, you know, confidently. So fear kicks in and you begin to be afraid. and You begin to sweat and all these other symptoms of fear begin to come. But see, as long as a person thinks they're in charge, as long as they think they can handle the situation, there's not much for a fear. It's when you can't handle it. It's being alone with your thoughts. It's the walking, the driving in an unusual place or a dark place or getting lost in a big city and strange people are staring at you. Fear is a monster ruler. Fear in the church, you're afraid to prophesy, we're afraid to, to give a testimony for fear of what somebody might think about us. So we don't say anything because, well, you know, I don't want anybody to laugh at me. You see, I can't handle laughing at me, they would say. Some people, it doesn't matter. You get laughed at, been laughed at, like me, been laughed at your whole life. So a little bit more ain't going to hurt. But you lose your fear... When you face the thing you fear and deal with it. You know, the thing that you fear the most will die if you deal with it. You have to conquer your fears. They never go away. You cannot just say, well, I'll go to sleep tonight and it'll be gone tomorrow. It'll be waiting on you in the morning and it'll be with you the rest of your life until you deal with it. Fear. God's people were feared by the nations around about them. The Bible says, and they feared Israel. You know why? Because they heard the stories. Israel cannot lose a battle. They can go in with a few people and defeat a whole lot of people because God, their God, the God nobody can see, there's no statue of God, but the invisible God that's with Israel dominates and defeats all of Israel's enemies. And their enemies with all their chariots and swords and their 300,000-man army and all their high places and their archers, and all they can do is fear what they can't handle. That's over my head. I'm afraid of God because these people come at us this way, and we die. So therefore, when the the Israelites come, we're backing off. The Bible says they feared them. Now, when the Israelites' hearts wasn't right anymore, nobody feared them. There was no fear in any of their enemies. But when fear is in our life, it means for one thing, we think we're in charge. we like to be in charge. I'm ruling right now. I can handle this. But when it gets to the place where I can't handle it, then I'm afraid. Jeff was mentioning it last Sunday about Goliath. We drove a bus by there once in that valley where that battle took place. And I remember on this big hillside was where the Israelites were and the Palestinians were way over there on on that other ridge and they fought in the middle or Goliath David did. And when Goliath got to the battle scene, they were all terrified. You know why? Because nobody was of a physical stature where he felt comfortable facing somebody that big. Because here came a guy that was... Old oh, 10 feet tall, he must have weighed that many pounds, you know, 10,000 pounds. But he was a huge man. And he just had that big beam for spear and, and a great big shield and a huge big man and probably had a deep old gruff voice. He was a freak of nature as far as I'm concerned, but he was still there. And he roared out, oh, come on and fight me. And everybody thought, since nobody I know who can handle that. And because they felt inferior, in, less, whatever, they were afraid. They wouldn't fight. Until a boy came along. About y'all's age, over here, my preachers. Somebody about your size. There's something different about this kid. He had never been a soldier before. He had never had armor on. He had never gone into a battle, never had fought. He would fought wild animals, but he had never dealt with another human being like this. But he had something that these other Israelites didn't have. He hadn't heard all that they had heard. But young David had heard enough to know that God was bigger than life's circumstances. There was nothing in life that God wasn't over. And therefore, this giant coming out, spewing all of that blasphemy out of his mouth against God's people, he said, Who does he think he is? His brother said, oh, shut up. You don't even know what you're... He said, wait a minute. He has no right to talk to us like that. We're God's people. Now, where was David's fear? He didn't have any. Why? Everybody else did. Nobody else was going to go out there and fight him. They were all cringing. Oh, we're going to name the name of God. We're God's people, but we're scared to death. They were scared to death. They cringed. And then this teenage boy goes out there. Says, "Who do you think you are talking to us like that?" The giant said, "What am I, a dog? That they sent a boy out here to fight me?" Says, "Come here, boy. I'm gonna feed your flesh to the birds." And David remember pick up one of those God-made rocks. You know, they first they put swords on him that man-made, and he says, "No, let me get something that God-made." So he reached down and got him a a little rock, or a big rock. I don't know how big it was. But the slingshot wasn't a fork and stick. It was a big leather strap, and they sling them around their head. And the Bible says some of those guys in David's army were so good, they could hit, and I forget what it was, at so many paces. They were really good. So David walked out there and took that rock, and you know the rest of the story. Now, what happened when David killed their fear? They lost their fear, and what did they do? They come running into battle, we can win, hallelujah, Woo! They weren't scared anymore, why? Because the thing they feared was put to death. It was put to death by a boy of all people, a kid. He didn't walk around terrified at all the things the world cowers from. He hadn't been around the world long enough to learn their ways. He hadn't watched enough TV to know what you're supposed to be scared of. There's honest fear, to be sure. You know, you don't want your kids to play in the street. That's an honest fear. There's a quality fear, the fear of God. That's honor and respect for God. That's good. But being afraid all the time, talking about what you're afraid of all the time, it's bondage. You're not supposed to live that way. We're not supposed to cringe every time God gives us something to do. We're not supposed to say, oh, I don't think I can do that. Oh, self is not supposed to be able to think it can do it all. God pushes us, leads us into situations where self is useless. Almost everything you've got to conquer is bigger than you are. You can't handle anything without his help. And if you don't get your security in Christ first, If you don't learn like David did, God's bigger than giants. God's bigger than life. There is nothing too difficult for God. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm on his side and so on and so forth. Thousands of verses or words. So of whom should I fear? Didn't Romans 8 say this? Whom should I fear? Of what should I be afraid? If God be for me, who can be against me? This guy's not afraid, you can't buy him, he's not for sale, you can't scare him, he's not afraid of you. He sees himself as a normal human being in need of food and water and baths. But when it comes to what he has to deal with in life, God is bigger than all of this stuff we face. He's bigger than the wayward child and the uncertainty of a child in school and how they're gonna do and whether they're normal or not. God's bigger than all that. In fact, God said, Ask. Didn't He say that? Amen. He said, Ask and I'll take care of it. What things ever you desire. Would you pray, believe that you receive it, and I'll give it to you. There's people who believe that. You say, well, it takes care of that. You're no longer afraid. You find yourself at the end of your rope, sometimes, but sometimes that's arranged like that. God leads you that way so that at the end of your journey or your efforts, you can only now rely on the Lord. That's where faith becomes what faith is supposed to be. It brings you through, making God who He really should be in your life. And you begin to trust in Him with all your heart and lean not to yourself, understanding. You devalue yourself and you put more value on God. I can't, He can. He's able, I'm not able. He is spirit, I'm poor in spirit. I need the, oh, I need the, why? Because I can't handle the things He gives me to do. Who wants to go witness in a foreign country? Oh, I don't know if I can do that or not. Of course you can. You're just afraid of rejection. You're afraid somebody might, you give them a track, I've done it. You give them a track and they look at it and throw it down and say a bad word. And that's offensive to you because there's something in you that needs to be de-offensed. You get to a place where, look, you're doing God's bidding, you let God take care of tomorrow and today and after a while. But fear, fear is a terrible thing. It just holds you back until Until you come to that place where I know in whom I have believed. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who leads, protects, and guides me. Therefore, I shall not lack. He leads me through this. He takes me to the green pastures and the clear waters. He restores me. He puts me back in the way I should be. That's the change. Yea, though I walk. In this life, through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't mean the valley of death. It just means that death is a threat. You're going to die. This ain't going to work. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I have a shepherd. His rod and his staff, those are two symbols of his strength. David took his staff and he killed lions and bears with it. I don't believe that. Well, he did it anyway. It's got to be a man's security is in God, not in himself. Are you afraid of the forecast of the coming doom and the financial markets or the terrorists are loose all over the world since 9-11? People in America cringe, afraid to fly, almost afraid to drive, afraid to leave home, afraid of any stranger. Anybody that looks like they might be a terrorist, you know, oh, we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be like that. God said that no evil should befall us and no plague come near our dwelling. He said in Hebrews thirteen five. he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, again, if God is with you, what is with you? Well, God, meaning what? In light of your daily life. What are you going to face tomorrow or this afternoon that's bigger than God? What is anybody in this room going to face or is looking at or facing that God is not bigger than or doesn't have a solution for if it's some adversity? Nothing. Our problem is not what the devil's trying to do to scare us. Our problem is the willingness to draw near to God and count on God to be who he is. It is. We lose fear. Do the thing you fear the most and the death of fear is certain. That's the way it works. Fear doesn't go away because you run from it. You run at it. Just like David did. I guarantee you that teenage boy running out there facing the big giant, he wasn't thinking within himself, I think I can whip this guy He's running out there with a rock and said, Oh, God, make it go where it's supposed to go. Because I got a whole nation behind me that are going into slavehood. If this one little rock, whatever big it was, if this rock misses its mark, a nation will become servants. One rock, slavehood. That boy wasn't afraid that it wouldn't work. You think of that. And the fact that a king... King Saul was willing to let this boy fight a giant that would determine whether we are ruled by them or whether we rule them. A kid with a rock, a fearless kid who knew the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, he said. Yea, though I run towards a giant in this valley of the shadow, I will not be afraid. God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And like Romans said a while ago, we said... If, If God is with me, who can be against me? But we shouldn't be ruled by fear, none of us. A fear of losing money. A fear of losing a job. A fear of a thousand things. Tell me this, those of you that have any kind of fear. What in your life is bigger than God's ability to make it better? Well, nothing. Then why should we be afraid? Why should we be afraid? I think I grew up afraid. I grew up scared. It's too long a story to go through all those terrible stories. But becoming a Christian, some of the situations that God puts you into traveling through the years were not things I was naturally disposed to do. Some of them were quite, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And yet I can stand here 40 years later and tell you how God is deliverance is wonderful. I think everybody should come to the place where we should be set free. Let me show you how you get set free. Turn to the book of Psalms, Psalms 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. Listen to me. Fearful people don't do that. But one thing, they can't see how that would help anything. I mean, they were saying, look, this is real. Well, so is this. But the choice is yours. We live by choices. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul, me, the part that fears or is free, my soul. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. That's my choice. And the humble shall hear thereof and be glad it will affect others. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. This is how you get free from fear. I sought the Lord and he what? He heard me. Now there's something connected here. I sought the Lord. I didn't just pray and didn't ask him a few questions. I engaged in a life of finding out who he is, finding out what he's like, what he does, what I can depend on, what he has given to me as a sure thing. I sought the Lord God knew the heart. He knows the heart is not a casual heart, but an earnest heart. I sought the Lord. And what does it say? He heard me. And what did he do? Isn't it amazing that in God you find your peace and your freedom from fear? And he delivered me from all my fears. All of my fears. But do you ever get afraid? Of course Nobody in here is exempt from fearful moments. But what do he say in Psalm 56 to do? You're close to it. What did he tell you to do on the times that you're afraid? He gives you exactly instructions in Psalm 56 and verse 3. He said, what time I am afraid? What do you do? I'll trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. But I do not believe that anybody will be able to trust the Lord who does not seek the Lord. Attending church is not necessarily seeking. You may be given something to seek. But if you're seeking is one hour a week in a church building with other people, I doubt if you're seeking much. But boy, if you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and you're in earnest, I've got to know this. And you bear down. And you make sure that that nothing gets between you and the Lord and seeking after him and finding out his way and getting to the place where I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced. That didn't come once a week in a church service. That came from God and me one-on-one. And in his mercy and his grace, he, he revealed himself to me. He showed himself to me. Like he said he would in John 14, he began to disclose himself to me and I saw who he was. I'd never seen him before. And like David, I lost my fear of stuff. If this is on my side, if this is what is never going to leave me or forsake me, why should I ever be afraid? What's bigger than that? Yeah, but how do you know that works? I'm trusting that it will. I can't make it work. I'm counting on what I'm reading. This book says how do you know about, I'm not trying to figure out the book I'm just reading what's in the book I'm going to take God at his word and if he said that he will then he will Look at Psalm 91 this is my other favorite psalm Psalm 91 first couple of verses is relationship He that dwells in the secret place you don't get there by thinking about it you have to go there it's a spiritual journey, and when you get there, something is discovered that wasn't previously known. You see something in a different way than you've ever seen it. You, he begins to be God. He, I mean, in fact, he gave God there four different names: there. "He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty." I will save the Lord. He is my. Refuge, my fortress, and my God. Some pretty classy Hebrew words describing God are used there. Elion, the high and lofty one. I mean, that's the exalted one. To know him, to dwell with him in a place in that kind of a realm where I can know him there. Wow. And then he begins to describe what happens after this. He delivers us. From the very things we fear. Look at it. In verse 3. He will deliver us from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings thou shalt trust. His truth that makes us free shall be your shield and your buckler. In other words, you find security in him and his promises and his provisions. Verse 5. You shall not what? You shall not what? Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, the swine flu, the bird flu, all the flues, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday, the terrorist. You won't be afraid of any of those. How do I know I won't be afraid of them? Because something happens to you when you relate to God. Something transpires. It's beyond your human ability to understand it. you don't have to be scared of this. God has made who he is bigger than who you are. You cannot, by searching, know him. He has to open the door and let you come in. And when you come in you go, whoa. You begin to see who he is and what he's able to do. And then you realize, why would I be afraid of anything? All the things that people are talking about, all the people that are buying insurance and all the gadgets they're buying to be protected from. It's just so much. And here they come, verse 7, A 1,000 will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. Verse 10, no evil shall befall you. These are benefits, folks, from relationship. Not Sunday morning, Wednesday night church going, I'm talking about relationship. Where God discloses and reveals himself to us. And we begin to see him as he is. And it's overwhelming, and you say, wow, because then you realize that he's bigger than life. Like Solomon said, heaven can't contain God, and yet he's willing to come down to where I am or let me come up to where he is and show himself to me in such a way that I am nothing but amazing. Then who in the world should I ever be afraid of? Look at how this psalm ends. When he said down in verse 14, because God has set his love upon me, he said, God said to us, I'll deliver you and I will set you on high. Verse 15, you will call upon me and I will answer. That's like John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will. Where's your fear now? What would you be afraid of? What, what can you not ask God to take care of that he won't? Or what would you ask God to take care of or deliver you from that he can't? Nothing is too difficult for thee. And he's the one who says, I am on your side. I am for you. You walk with me. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but I do want you fellowship. I do want you to come and fellowship with the Lord. I want you to know me. I want you to learn who I am. I want you to be so sure of what I'm going to show you in that secret place that as you walk through life... Nothing will ever be able to, de- to take you back, defeat you, throw you down, and you'll never be afraid of anything. Why? Because of who he is. God is good. He even ends this verse by telling you he'll even satisfy you with long life. As far as I know, the word satisfy doesn't mean temporary occasions. Satisfy means, you know, you come to the end of your life. I'm believing it. When you come to the end of your life, you won't be going, but you'll be satisfied. Be happy. How do you know when the end of your life is? Who knows? David was four years younger than I am. He is wore completely out, and God said he lived full of days. He was only 70. He was only 70. Why, he's just a boy. (laughs) No, he he was a little older, but God blessed him in every way he could. Why wouldn't he? Who was David afraid of? What battle was he afraid of? Every time he asked God for help, God was on his side. There was nobody that could stand against him. We sing that song No man can stand against us. Then why should anybody in this room this morning, whatever it is, why would you be afraid of it? Well, it's a disease. A disease you've heard a lot about, talked about it to a lot of people. They all give you the same thing. It's deadly, it's dangerous, and it'll take your life, and chances are you're about done. And yet you go to your heavenly father in private and he said, What do you say that with what? Long life he'll deliver you? That he is your physician, he is Yahweh Rophika? He heals us of all our diseases, then why should we be afraid of disease? Sometimes you can't help pain, you're being put to the test. But some of these difficult times and moments in our life are designed to drive us to God. You reach the end of yours and you enter into his. And then you begin to realize, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And without Christ, as he told Pilate, without me you can do nothing. Apart from me, nothing. But I can do all things through Christ. So let my goal in this life be an earnest quest to know God, to know who He is, to know the surety of His promise, the sincerity of His integrity. That what he said, he really meant it. That if he said he'll do it, he really will do it. Let me know that in my heart beyond the shadow of a doubt so that I dread getting up no day, facing no situation at work, at home, anywhere. Make me more than a conqueror through Christ. Then I will not be afraid. And I hope that my fearlessness, not foolishness, but my fearlessness, will rub off on others. That's one thing. That's one great fear that binds a lot of Christians is fear. A second one is about as bad. It's called guilt. Guilt. Guilt means you deserve punishment. A person who knows they are wrong, knows they are guilty of something, they know they deserve punishment. Now, you can try to put drugs in it. You can try to put another woman or another man in it. You can try to put money in it. But the human mind is so made that you cannot escape the fact that you are guilty. You know, I think they're trying to take sin now out of dictionaries. Because you know what sin is? You know what the Ten Commandments tells you? The Ten Commandments, like Romans chapter 3, tells us that the whole world's guilty. That we all stand before the Lord guilty. The word guilt, believe it or not, is only used twice in the Bible. Both of them in the Old Testament. The word guilty, while it's used 26 times, only six times is it used in the New Testament. So it's not a common word. But it's a common word situation in a lot of Christians hearts that prevent them from going forward because oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm so unworthy. I just don't live right. I'm not trying hard as I should. So because they know they're not right, because they know they're not trying like they should, you just draw back. And you don't draw back to get cured, fixed, healed or delivered. You draw back to death. Amen. Do I remind you, it has to do with faith. But guilt is a faith killer. The just shall live by faith. Remember that? But if any man draws back, it happens in faith churches all the time. If any man draws back, God said, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The writer goes on to say, we're not those who draw back. I'm saying, if you draw back, he said, you draw back to perdition. You don't draw back to a, an excuse. Well, you know, I, I know I'm going to heaven, but I just don't think I can trust the Lord. Be careful. That's not a good thing to say because you're given something better than that. And it might come down to the fact that you don't think you're quite good enough to live this life. You don't think you're quite advanced enough. You still haven't maybe gotten over your past. Maybe you were in an accident once and somebody died. You were molested once. Now you feel so inferior, unclean, and you're just not good enough. And all these things keep you from enjoying God and keep you from going forward and keep you from having in your life all the wonderful things that you could have. You don't feel any good. You don't feel like you deserve anything. You're hard to teach because no matter how good what you've heard is, you're convinced it won't work for you. Why won't it work for you? Well, if you knew how I lived before, you'd know what I'm talking about. But please don't think you're the Lone Ranger because there's a whole lot of people in this room that lived a whole lot bad, a whole lot badder, (laughs) lived a lot worse than you probably did. Let me do my word. he lived a whole lot better than you did. I like that. And, you know, you, you can come to a place where guilt, guilt just keeps you feeling censured. You feel rejected. You feel insecure. It's just a thing that keeps you from stepping out and letting God use you because, well, you know, I'm... I'm just not much of anything that anybody would ever want to use. Maybe your big problem is a rejection of God's forgiveness. Maybe God made it a point all through the New Testament to describe forgiveness, the benefits of being forgiven. And maybe you're saying, no, I don't believe he meant that. I know God said that, but I don't believe in it. Because you see, I'm worse than sin. Like I said, you read the Ten Commandments, all you can think of is sin because you violated every one of them. And there's not a thing in the Ten Commandments. There's not one part of any of those commandments that tells you how to be free from those sins. They just tell you this is a perfect law of God, you know. No other gods, don't take his name in vain, don't do this and honor your parents, don't steal, lie, cheat, and defraud your neighbor. And you read all those and you think, well, I've done every one of those. Well, then you're guilty. You deserve death. What? You deserve death. Well, I go to church, I don't care where you go. The wages of sin is what? Death. There's no hope for anybody. Because sin has consumed us all. All we like sheep have gone astray, and nobody's right. And then what Jesus did is portrayed scripture after scripture, defining for us the wonderful, the marvelous freedom of being forgiven of our sins. The wonderful song, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I can go to church now having gone through what was to me a pretty sinful life. A shameful life. Things that I would probably have trouble forgiving somebody that would act like that to my children. Shameful. And yet God, when He saved me, He knew exactly what I had done, knew exactly how I did it, knew every dastardly thing about me, and He forgave me all my sins. There's not a single thing in my life now that can keep me in my past, that keep me out of heaven. God forgave me all that sin. I'm forgiven and every christian is forgiven in like way you're forgiven also turn to jeremiah look at jeremiah chapter 33 jeremiah chapter 33 i think it's verse 8 now there's many verses like this i just chose these two jeremiah and another one because it does define what's happened to us folks we're forgiven We are forgiven of everything that we are holding ourselves down for. Yes, you sinned like a terrible person. Yes, you did. God knew that when he let you come in here. He didn't say, oh, this building will fall down if you come in. Worse than us have been in here. And it's the love of God that's reached out, touched their heart, brought conviction, and then godly sorrow. God did it. Until a man or a woman began to weep over their sins in their past and in shameful sorrow ask God to forgive us. And he did. And his forgiveness is glorious. Because when I walk out of here, I don't have to give an account for any of my sins, they're gone. Psalm 103, verse 12: as far as the east is from the west, I'm free. But in Jeremiah 33, 8, he said, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Folks, our sins in the past wasn't against each other and against those poor people you hurt and maimed and all of that. Our sin was against God. Those times you sit in church before you got saved and you made jokes and snickered and talked back and forth. And you totally dishonored God by not even giving him an hour's attention. Not even that long. Had no regard for God. No fear of God. No interest in God. Ha! To God. Laugh and cut up and chew gum. Write notes. Text messages. Because that's the sorriness of our hearts. Then God saves you. And once he saves you, you won't do that anymore. If you're still doing it, then you need to get saved. Because God does something to the heart that he abides in. He doesn't leave it alone. It's a thing called conviction. He wants to keep us clean. And he said in Psalms 31 and verse 34. Psalm 31 verse 34, he said... And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them and to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Listen to me. Whoever you are here this morning, you may be listening somewhere. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you've done. I don't care whose life you've taken, who you hurt the most. If God is willing to bring you to himself and convict you of your sins, he wants to save you. And when he does, all your sins are removed from your life. You stand justified before God, just as if I'd never sinned. And you're free. You're his. But it's hard for some people to accept forgiveness. I've talked to a lot of people in my life who just didn't feel like that the sin that they committed, God would really forgive it. I mean, they were just too bad. One story in the Bible of a man like that in Luke 18. You remember the story of the publican and this Pharisee that went into the temple to pray? And the Pharisee was full of himself, boasted of how righteous he was and how good he was. And the publican, what does it say? He could not so much as lift up his head. He couldn't even raise his head up to where God is. Couldn't do that. But as so often happens when you're shamed by your sins before God, you bow your head. You lower yourself. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was aware of his sins. He said, God, forgive me of all these sins. And think about it. Even as Christians, we don't always do well. But, listen to this. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As though you had never sinned. Now your mind say, oh, you were terrible. You were. But now that God has cleansed you, he's made all things new. It's time to begin to walk in newness of life. And the sinner, by this act of grace, by God and what God has actually done for us, the sinner is forever freed from the guilt and the penalty of his sins. Therefore, you have to tell yourself, even though I was with, I did, I partook of, I was a part of, Just recently, my heart is broken. I'm so ashamed and God has forgiven me. And I know, while I can't just strike all of that out of my mind, I know when the devil tries to throw that back at me, I'm not good enough. I know that I can say this, God has forgiven me all of that. That no longer is held against me. I'm free. God's forgiveness is wonderful. Because if you don't, Realize you're forgiven, you're going to be dragging back in your past, trying to work your way to heaven by getting good enough to think you deserve things that God has. And it never works like that. It just doesn't come to that. A third thing, probably the worst of the two so far. And what could be worse than fear and guilt? Doubt. Doubt. Doubt is when you're uncertain. You're not sure. You're unsettled. Doubt is a mental word. It's a word that describes the inability of the mind to stay in one place. Remember what he said in James chapter 1? He said, if a man asks God for something, he should believe he's got it, because if he doesn't believe he has it, he won't get it. He said, he's like the wave of the sea if he doubts Doubts is when your mind is like the wave of the sea, you're tossed back and forth. You're never really sure. You know what God said is true, but you also know the, the circumstances that you're looking at. This had nothing's changed, but God said you're healed, but your body says you're not healed. God says by his stripes you were healed. My body says every kind of pain there is to be experienced, I'm experiencing it. So how can I be healed if I'm not? Well, It's your choice. God didn't say when you pray, you'd feel better. He said when you pray, what? Believe. Believe. And the problem, and I've been doing this for going on half a century. And the one problem I see with people that have heard what we've heard for 40 years, 30 years, is they still have trouble believing. Now, there's some kind of bad influence and interference in our lives. Something is getting in there and clouding the issue because there's no cloud with God. God says we are. The world, the devil, and the intellectual worldly system says we're not. Circumstances say you're not. Conditions say you're not. God says you are. Now, who do you believe? You're going to make a choice. Because if you can't make that choice, listen. James chapter 1 verse 7 says, Let not that man think that he or she will receive anything from God. That's a pretty big word. So I need not only to get in there before the Lord and and learn who He is, but I need to get to a place where self-reliance gives way to God-reliance, to where I'm going to count on the Lord to do what He said. I can't do it. Healing a body is out of my control. Healing circumstances is out of my control. A snowy road, a dark night is out of my control. I can't do anything about it, but God can but he won't unless I believe. And for me to believe means I'm counting on God to do what he said. And that's all faith is. I don't think you can make anything more out of it. You can say more about it and and give other descriptions, but you can't go beyond that. Faith is counting on God to do for you what he said. Because the Bible said if he said it, He will do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. That's Isaiah 55. He's not a man that he should lie. That's Numbers 23, 19. That's all he can do. That's all he has to do. He tells you what he will do. What do you say? He says he does. He says he will. He says he can. He says it's so. Everything around you, circumstances, everything you look at, everything you hear, everything you feel says, no, it's not. It's not. And because the world is lodged over here in the realm of feeling and senses, they think we are fools because we're saying, I will trust the Lord with all my heart and not lean on what? My own understanding, because my understanding is that this is not working. It can't work. How could it work? God said it would. How can that be? Now, if I don't deal with this, doubt's going to whoop me. And when doubt gets the door open, here comes fear. And when fear gets in and I fail a battle, then here comes guilt. Now look at you, now, big time Christian. Oh, watch you prophesy. You're so terrible. You know why all of this comes in? Because of doubt. I think one of the devil's great weapons is doubt. Just put a question mark where God puts a period. Hath God said? Think about it. The Bible said the devil deceived Eve through his subtlety. He, with words, he suggested to her that perhaps what God said is not exactly true. Think about it. Isn't that what textbooks say? Isn't that what well-meaning people, isn't that what liberals say? Isn't that what all this intelligent, meaningful, caring world says? But what does God say? I know what people say about people like me. I don't know about you all. I know what they have said in the past about me because I have chosen as an act of my will to believe that God not only meant what he said, but that he will do it. And I can say after 45 years later, by June, it has worked. It has worked. I don't like to languish, I don't like to struggle. I don't like to flop back and forth about whether or not God meant what he said. But that's what James 1 says a man does when he gets nothing. He comes to his life and says, well, I don't know about all that. I tried it. It just didn't work for me. It does work. The problem was doubt. The problem was honest doubt in your mind. Jesus said, if you have faith and doubt not, he said, there's nothing that's impossible to you. Mountains moving, trees plucked up by the roots, the dead being raised. What's impossible to you? Didn't he say, "What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you have it, and and you shall have it. Think of it. here I am, as ordinary and as common, more common than you folks are, the least of you, all of you. The idea that God could take somebody like myself with my background, with my raising, my situation, totally undeserving of anything God has, anything, anything. Unworthy, undeserving of anything and everything. I deserve death. And one day, June 30th, 1968, Just as I am and waiting not, To rid my soul of one dark blot To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot O Lamb of God I come Followed Bonnie all the way to the altar Been following her ever since (laughs) And the wonderful ensuing life Especially prefaced By that God Given ability to trust him Has liberated us We're not free from trials. We still have them like you do. But there is something now that is sufficient. As Paul said, didn't he say our sufficiency is in Christ? I can do all things through Christ. And doubt, oh, doubt always knocks on your door, but you have to overcome it. You have to tell doubt where it's supposed to go. And let me say this in closing about doubt. Think of this. Doubt, is generally due to a negative view of what God has said. Think of it. Has God ever lied to us? Did he lie when he said all those thousand promises? Are those lies? Did he really mean what he said? Now y'all going to have to say yes or I ain't going to let you go. That's power, isn't it? But anyway, he said, he said, God said, if I said it, I'll do it. You're my people. I called you out of darkness. Put my spirit in you. If I said it, I'll do it. So you say, well, of course you will. Don't go, well, I know you could. Well, I know you have. I've read it. Yeah, that's good. Uh." But, Lord, this is a pretty big situation that I'm in. What if God said, are you telling me that what I told you I would do, I won't do it? Do you have a negative spirit about you? Are you saying that God cannot be trusted? Are we calling him a liar when we do that? Surely not. I think he said in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. I mean, it was sort of a warning, but listen to this. Let me just read you something in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. You got it from God. But, listen, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar. He said he would, and you said, well, by the action I'm going to take, the choice I'm going to make, I doubt if he will. I don't think he will. I don't think he'll heal my body, supply my needs, uh, save my family. I'm going to mope and mourn over all of this, even though God has given me a promise of deliverance from it. I don't know how it's going to work. Our problem, folks, is doubt. It's a faith problem. Every one of these traits that, that bind people are due to a faith problem. We fear because we don't think God will take care of it. We're guilty because we don't believe we're forgiven. We doubt because we're not sure he'll do it. Now, I'm about to close, but let me say, this. I don't want to holler and fuss and be an ugly, crotchety old man. But how much teaching is it going to take for us as a church to trust God as a church? What more does God have to say to us that would bring us out of the doubt doldrums, if that's a word? What is God going to have to do to cause us to, to ponder and, and meditate and see that what He's saying is true? God delivered me from being a negative spiritual person. One who, with my mouth, says, God is able, God is can, but with my choices, it's just the opposite. I don't want me to see him as a liar. That's a bad one, doubt. But if people are bound with doubt. And finally, and I will just make a brief note here about the fourth one, is resentment. And how many people are controlled by their feelings towards somebody else. Anybody in your life you will not forgive controls you. Somebody's offended you, and we've all been offended in this room. We've probably said to some people or about some people, "I hate you. Right away you've got a problem." God forgave you, but somebody did something to you, worse, not near as bad as you did to God, but you won't forgive them. It's not fair. It's not right. What in life is fair and right, according to the world's way? Is the IRS? Who's that? Is some politician? some president or some political system. They're human beings. They're all a part of an end time plan. It's coming to a head. It's going to make sense one day. But for us, we forgive them all. If I've been forgiven much, I should forgive much. There's nobody in my life that I can think of this morning that I resent. I've had people say some bad things about my children, and it gets back to me. I got a tape one time mentioning one of my children, and, you know, my life in those days was pretty confrontational. You know, you get on the phone. I called a preacher one time and said a few things to him. He was wrong. But you go talking about somebody's children, you know, and you start making that an issue. But I remember at the time, having thought about it, I thought, now, this man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would never have said that. My children are not the issue. If you got a problem, it comes back to me. Don't attack my family. But if you do, I'm not going to send you to hell because I gave up the Lamb's Book of Life. I gave it back to God. But I'm just going to say this, that the people can say things. We've had people join this church, leave this church, leave in a huff, said some ugly things, gone to other places and said things that, oh, I don't know what all they said. I know I've been to some other places and people stare at me. I think, what have you heard? They've probably heard that you trust God, that you believe in healing, that you're different. I don't resent those people. One of the greatest statements ever made In Luke 23, a man was being put to death. He was hanging very, very painfully on a cross, had nails driven in his hands. I cannot imagine nails driven as sensitive as our feet are, driving a a spike through your feet. You know, when you're hanging, you try to push yourself up, and that spike just says, no, you're not. And so you kind of sag, and when you sag, you're pulling on these, and and there's, there's no relief. You only can die. And being brutalized and beaten and hair pulled out and smacked and thorns shoved down into your scalp and your back is shredded. And you're the most innocent soul that has ever lived on this earth. And this man's name was Jesus. And on the cross he said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Another man in the Bible said the same thing just about. His name was Stephen. And they were stoning him. I mean, they were killing him because he testified. He spoke the truth. He probably knew that he would die for this because these people were fanatics. But he spoke it. A man full of faith and power. And he's being stoned. And while he's being stoned, he looked up, he saw Jesus. You know what he said? He said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. I will not meet you with a resentful heart against anybody, no matter what they've done they stole from me, they lied about me, they cheated me, they took advantage of me, they did this and they did that, I will not let any of those people rule my mind and my thinking. Because if the thought of you makes me go, then you rule me. And I'm bound to you. I want to be free from all of them. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I want to thank you for your goodness and your kindness. I want to thank you for your love for us. I want to thank you this morning for your efforts at the way you minister to us, at the way you meet us together when we come together, for the things you put in our heart that we take home with us. I want to thank you, Lord, that the work you've started, You really will finish it. There are needy souls here this morning, Lord, spiritually needy people. There may be some who are not yet saved. Their sin still is the penalty of death in their life. My desire is that you would save them. Fill them with your spirit. Unite our hearts with yours. Make us one. Lead us in the way everlasting. Beside the green pastures and the still waters, even the valleys in our lives. But lead us in a place in such a way that when it's over, like Stephen, then we see the glories of heaven. We will know that everything we've done, every effort we've made was worth it, and it was worth it because you've loved us to bring us that way. I thank you for it. I believe you for it. And ask you to bless with conviction everybody in this room this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand your feet?
1: Thy loving kindness is better than love. Thy loving Is better than love. My lips shall praise Thee. Thus will I bless Thee. I will lift up my hands in Thy name. Thy loving kindness is better than. better than